Bulletproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. I'm so glad to be with you here today. Hey, I just launched my Patreon, and if you want to go check that out, I'd really appreciate it. I've got to justify to my wife why I'm spending about an hour in the basement every Friday, and she's wondering when when some of these investments I'm making are going to pay off. So I'd love it if you would partner with me. Five, ten dollars a month would go a long way to to just pay for the basic equipment of running a podcast and keep great content coming to you. Uh, speaking of great content, I'm really excited about our guest today. I've got Megan Basham on the show. She is a Rotten Tomatoes approved critic and a cultural reporter for the Daily Wire and a frequent contributor to World uh, to Morning Wire. In her previous role as entertainment editor and podcast co-host for World Magazine, she interviewed lots of people, uh, probably a lot of people that my wife know more, more than I do. And uh, she has written for the Wall Street Journal, National Review, and Town Hall, and her book, uh, Beside Every Successful Man, is available on Amazon. I'll drop that in the show notes. But Megan, thank you so much for being on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So part of the reason I was curious to have you on is, uh, and this is a little bit of a change up because I'm used to having just theologians on to try mm. to help my audience grow in that way. But there were a couple of stories that you wrote that I found really uh, compelling and lined up with what I was seeing. We're going to talk about Francis Collins and the story you wrote for the Daily Wire there. Um, I've got to ask, first of all, though, uh, this book, Beside Every Successful Man, <laughs> when, when did that come out? So that was at the very beginning of my career. It's that's kind of a wild story about how it came about. A uh, long time ago, 2008, uh as a newly married person, I wrote this book, uh, which is funny that I'm talking about it now cuz obviously it's been out for a while and it actually came out like 2 days before the great crash of 2008. And so at the time I went on the Today show for a moment it looked like it was going to be kind of buzzy and then yeah, the Bear, you know, Bear Stearns, Goldman Sachs, everything crashing just wiped it right off the uh, media landscape. But it was just a book about how uh, all of the things being equal, married women tend to want to stay home with their children. And we live in a time when that's really difficult financially. And so I spent a lot of time in that book looking at soci sociological research, doing a lot of interviews with successful men who said that part of the reason they got where they were was because of the help of their wives. And so it was really about how wives could help their husbands be successful in breadwinning and in their careers so that the wives had more flexibility to stay home with their kids. And that was something that we actually did. We put it into practice. I was really helpful to my husband in getting into his broadcasting career. And before our kids both started in um, their small Christian school, I, I mostly stayed home and worked part-time. And so that's probably why when people go, why had we not heard of you before this? Because I was doing that. So that's great. I love now that. I have a little more time. <laughs> well, that, uh, that, discovery I made, because I was reading your bio and I saw that and I was like, you know, I just asked yesterday, I was talking with women at my church because women are really hungry for a resource that's not just pop complementarianism. And but what I mean by that is just like, how far can we push the boundaries mm -hmm. and still be somewhat Christian? And that's also, I, I learned a new phrase. You may enjoy this. Uh, it's called a prairie muffin. How can, how can I not turn into a prairie muffin? A prairie muffin is someone who that. believes yeah. in homesteading, homeschooling, and uh, and being a housewife, you know, homemaker. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like if right. that's the vision that y'all want, that's great. But I have a lot of women, my wife included, who's a successful businesswoman. Um, I've got a lot of women in my life who like have a career and they, they want to honor what the Bible says about raising young kids. So I'm, I'm really excited that I discovered this book uh, just, just this morning. So I'm going to, I'm going to recommend it to a lot of people. I'm going to check it out myself first, of course, <laughs> but, uh, but thank you so much for contributing in that way. Um, Right off the bat, though, I wanted to kind of like 
get your take and kind of your understanding, your approach. You're a Christian. You're working for the Daily Wire. You were with World Magazine. There's a lot of questions today, especially, I mean, me personally, over the last two years, media credibility is like, it feels like it's just in the tank. And so as a Christian, how do you approach kind of journalism and especially working with, I mean, the Daily Wire is, I think it's unashamedly, they say we're conservative. That's yes. their approach. <laughs> and so how does that work? How do you approach that? How do you build trust in this day and age? Well, you know, it's been really interesting going from World, which was an explicitly Christian news organization to Daily Wire, which is a conservative but secular news organization in which I happen to work as a Christian. Uh, so it's been really sort of fascinating to see how both organizations have approached journalism because for World, it was explicitly a biblical worldview. How do we take these stories and line them up against what the Bible tells us is true about our world and about events? On the flip side, when I went over to Daily Wire, I thought it might be very different. You know, I didn't know how they would feel about me writing about some of these things. And in fact, they've been, I would say, as open, if not more open, to bringing a biblical worldview to bear on some of my reporting. And so one of the first things that I always like to sort of tell, particularly young people who are interested in journalism, is that I feel like no one is better equipped to be a good journalist than a Christian because every other form of journalism is working from a lack of base, a lack of standard. They, they kind of go, well, we want to be objective. And what does objective mean? It means just collecting quotes from both sides. But they don't have a foundation of going, this is the truth. Mm. We are on a rock solid foundation of this is what life is. This is what a man and this is what a woman is. This is what marriage is. So part of what I like to say is that, look, if you're using a news organization that doesn't start with that foundation, you're going to get some really slippery stories because they don't have a grounded understanding of the most fundamental true things that our world needs. So I, I mean, that's probably where I'd begin. Yeah, that makes sense a lot. I, you know, looking back in history, it's interesting to to look at how news media has developed through the 20th century, just kind of like a cursory overview where you get kind of competing uh, perspectives, competing publications, but then you you water that into a culture that's very postmodern, doesn't really care about truth, is very relativistic, and yet tries to hold itself up as like objective, almost a scientific standard with journalism. And, and everyone knows that it's anything but objective. And so one of the reasons I, at least I can appreciate the Daily Wire where it's like, we're conservative. And it's like, okay, I, I kind of know what right. I'm going to get there. You know, I don't have to second guess. One of the articles that you uh, recently wrote for the Daily Wire was on Francis Collins and his influence in evangelicalism. And the reason I uh, liked it, 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 a lot of it was new information, but some of it was not because I've been seeing this happen over the last two years. And I want more people to read this article. I think there's a paywall on it and it maybe got, it got republished somewhere else. So, But I'm going to put the Daily Wire link in the show notes so my listeners can hear it. Could you just give my listeners kind of a teaser or, or kind of a uh, what did you discover in that article about evangelicals and Francis Collins? Well, it's funny as I've been talking about this story, people have asked me, you know, what what prompted this reporting? And I, it wasn't like an assignment, and it wasn't like um, I don't even remember a moment where I specifically pitched it to an editor. It was more that as an evangelical myself, who consumes news from outlets like Christianity Today, who follows a lot of these. Um, large platform leaders like Rick Warren, like Tim Keller, Ed Stetzer, and T. Wright, I myself kept noticing Collins 
constantly <laughs> popping up everywhere. And so it really just started as a personal interest thing that I would listen to these podcasts, I would read these articles and feel frustrated that I knew the full story wasn't being portrayed mm. uh, because I work in the news media and I'm, you know, they say you're too online. Well, that's definitely me. I'm too online. I'm too plug in, plugged into the news cycle. So I had a lot of information that I just went, they're not covering a lot of angles in these things. They're really sticking to a very specific government endorsed script about the pandemic, about coronavirus, about COVID treatments, a whole host of things about the efficacy of masks. And they weren't just sticking to the script as far as what the government wanted said. They were also weaving in Christianese and making it gospel issue. They were mm. saying that this is how you love your neighbor. This is how you follow Jesus in some cases. Some of these leaders directly said, this is how you follow Jesus. Well, you know, as a reporter who was covering this in other areas, I went, okay, that's just off base. You know, I'm like, th these issues are much more complex and they're being portrayed. I knew for a fact that cloth masks are not very effective, that, you know, that, that that's just a fact. And um, there's some questions about vaccines for younger people. Were they necessary? Were they worth the risk? And, and, and I was in no way saying I'm anti-vax. I was just saying, this is a complex issue and it's not being presented this way by these Christian media figures. And they certainly weren't presenting any other alternative views from other medical experts. So that's kind right. of where it began is I, I just started going, well, I'm just going to listen through all of the podcasts. I'm going to read through all of the articles. And without even intending to, I started taking notes. <laughs> and at that point, I looked down and went, I, I just have a massive amount of information here. And um, I started putting it to, into a report. And this is kind of a long answer and I'll wrap it up. But at that point, um, you know, when the story came out, what I was showing was that, in my view, these Christian media figures, these platforms had compromised their witness by turning over their authority to a federal government official who not only had his own motivations that were not necessarily entirely grounded in wanting to honor God and honor Christ as the church in this moment of the pandemic, but were also grounded in some pretty personal motivations that were protecting him and his reputation, protecting his department's reputation. And so that was kind of part of what I looked at. Um, and, you know, some people said, oh, this was such a great investigative piece. And I went, it really wasn't. It wasn't investigative. <laughs> I, I didn't uh, I didn't have to make any FOIA requests. I didn't have to, you know, get someone on the phone and go, I'll protect your anonymity. It wasn't like that. It was just this, this information was everywhere all over yeah. the web. So I just it put it all together. <laughs> It's just all out there. I mean, that's what was so shocking is when you just look at the links, it's like, it's plain as day. You've got Rick Warren, N.T. Wright, Tim Keller, and they're all lauding. I mean, I think the most, dis like, to be frank, the the most sickening part of it was seeing N.T. Wright and uh, Francis Collins sing a song together. Is that what I saw? <laughs> and I was just yes. like, what is going on? Now, maybe that's just like their hobby, you know, like maybe give the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they love doing that together. But like, that just kind of creeped me out. It's almost like when Stephen Colbert had the vaccine dance right. on a show, it felt just so propaganda-y and uh, it was so disturbing. Right. And, you know, there was more to that because I think when you, what you felt with that clip was that there was very much, I mean, you know, it, we throw around the term evangelical elite, but that clip and a lot of what the story put forward was that there is a real sort of evangelical elite club. In fact, when you listen to all of these, several of these men, Russell Moore, Tim Keller, 
um, Pete Wenner, who who's not necessarily an evangelical leader, but he he is quoted in the New York Times, The Atlantic, as being an evangelical voice. David French, they're all in this book club together, and that was sort of fascinating to me. How many times I heard them all bring up this book club, and I went what is the deal with this book club that they're all in together and they keep mentioning, which is fine that they're in a book club together, yeah. but it told you that the, that, that these connections were very heavily being leveraged on uh, behalf of an agenda. And what, what is the book club? I didn't see that in the article. Was that in the article? It was, I mean, I mentioned it briefly. I didn't dwell on it too much, but so N.T. Wright, Tim Keller, Russell Moore, I, I feel like one other uh, Definitely Pete Winner, someone else, David Brooks, I think, is of the New York Times is in this book club. They kept mentioning this this book club that they're all in together, which was really interesting to me. And to kind of dovetail on that, I had a second report that came out last week um, that was based on a secret leaked audio recording of a presentation that Russell Moore and Francis Collins gave at the University of Chicago to David Axelrod's students in his Institute of Politics. If you don't know David Axelrod, he was um, one of Obama's top advisors. And in this presentation where they did not think they were being recorded, and they said several times, we're so glad that this is off the record, mm. um, there was, I'll just say bluntly, they were mocking Christians who were resistant to uh, wanting to get the vaccine which you go, well, that's that's not very loving of your neighbor either, your Christian brothers and sisters. I mean, Francis Collins explicitly put on um, sort of a faux Southern accent and said something about, well, my rights, I don't have to get the vaccine. And, and they chuckled over forcing people to take a shot that they don't want over the threat of job loss. And I I, I think the callousness of it was really surprising to me, but that was an, another piece of evidence that went, there. there's very much something of a boys club here. Yeah, I think that's been what's most disturbing to me is like, oh wow, they're they're on the one hand, you know, I as a pastor, I go and I hear these people talk about how we shouldn't desire power, we shouldn't desire influence, we shouldn't have great ambition to be connected and to be a celebrity. Uh, while while at the same time they're having backroom meetings and and kind of buddy buddy with each other, which like you said, totally understandable because that's how social connections work. Right. But to to kind of have this duplicity about what it means to be a pastor, what it means to speak the truth, what it means to be in power, while at the same time, you're just like rubbing shoulders with the elite and just kind of like really enjoying the fruits of that. Um, and and not to, it doesn't feel very transparent, uh, which in this day and age, that's that's kind of like how you build trust. You have to be transparent. And some of these people were not being transparent when you when you were kind of listening and, and you were just taking notes, like you said. Um, and, and I'm, I'm kind of a big believer where like, if the motive isn't clear, you know, we shouldn't, it, it's not helpful to get too cynical on it. Although my heart can get that way a lot of times with the Francis Collins stuff, especially, but was there any kind of indicator of what you said pr he was trying to protect his own reputation or, or financial gain? What were some of the motives that were driving kind of the decision-making process in, in kind of the shaping of the narrative? I mean, well, a really big one was one that has been huge in the news cycle, though it's more connected to Anthony Fauci, because I think people know Anthony Fauci's name a little bit better. But Francis Collins is actually Anthony Fauci's boss until December. Uh, so what you saw in the news cycle were these email leaks. Um, early on, there was a question of where did the coronavirus come from? And if you'll remember, it was actually a fairly reasonable supposition from some people going, 
well, gosh, there is a coronavirus lab in Wuhan where it originated. It seems reasonable to question whether or not that might have been um, the origin. Well, in some of these podcasts and interviews, that was presented as a conspiracy theory. Uh, you you saw it in a Christianity Today live stream where Francis Collins explicitly said this was man made or this was nature made. This wasn't man made. Um, that is just a conspiracy theory. Well, in my view, as a journalist, I went, if Christianity Today is platforming this conversation, then there was a moment for them to come in and say, okay, well, this is not um, the general view of every scientist out there, that there, there is a question about this, but they didn't do that. And not only that, at the time, Ed Stetzer wrote an article following that up in Christianity Today that was chastising Christians for indulging in conspiracy theories related to the coronavirus. And one of those conspiracy theories was the lab leak theory, which now turns out to be not necessarily concretely proven, but it's it's very credible. Let's mm -hmm. put it that way. The jury is still out. It's a very credible hypothesis. So the reason that there's a bit of a cover up there is that we later came out that one, Francis Collins and Anthony Fauci collaborated to suppress that in the media. They said, wow. what can we do to suppress this story and and keep people from talking about it? Let's convince other scientists not to run articles about it. And then second, there is still a question of whether or not the NIH, the department Francis Collins headed, along with Anthony Fauci's department, funded the gain-of-function research in Wuhan that could have led to this kind of coronavirus. So, you know, there was some real conflicts of interest there, and it was not appropriate for um, Christian media to be giving him an outlet to sort of suppress what was a very legitimate public interest story. Yeah, that that always confused me early on, where there were these overlapping spheres of influence with how that lab was getting funded, who was in charge of the funding, and uh, and so I was always so perplexed when you when it comes to maybe the Christian, the evangelical world, and you see these leaders. Do you think they're just kind of like enamored with, hey, this is a national figure? Apparently, he's like the faithful presence model. I didn't know that. I didn't even know who Francis <laughs> Collins was until 2020. Um, but do you think there there was just kind of a a willful ignorance that, well, we trust him, so we're going to go with what he says? Or what did you see there? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's not one that I necessarily have an answer to um, because they they haven't responded. Um, you know, part of the frustration, you mentioned elite, and I think that that is part of the appeal is that, frankly, you know, these are people who travel in very Tony circles. And I, I think it is natural to want to be a part of that, to feel excited about having access to someone that high up in the administration. Um you know, it was kind of funny when you were listening through these interviews, my antenna definitely went up when I heard Rick Warren say, well, I met Francis Collins at Davos. And you went, okay, well, it doesn't get more elite than Davos. Right. The, the organization, you know, they, that's, the, it, it's put on by the World Economic Forum, which is the organization that, you know, the world's wealthiest billionaires, state heads, leaders across uh, international boundaries, they gather. And I don't know what they talk about there because I'm not a Davos person. <laughs> but uh, but that was fascinating to me that I went, there is no more elite organization in the world than the World Economic Forum or more elite gathering than Davos. So certainly that could be part of it. Um, I don't know as far as how much they knew about Francis Collins' record. 
you know, because one thing we haven't talked about here is part of what I laid out in that article was that Francis Collins's record, though he was being presented as a faithful Christian brother, was really, really problematic. Um, he has declared himself an LGBT ally. He has funded research personally, put his name to initiatives that fund trans research on children, that give children opposite sex hormones, that give girls as young as 13 mastectomies. So that was problematic. He also has a very problematic uh, record on life. He is known for defending fetal tissue research. And some of that research that has come out of the NIH while he was the head of it included harvesting organs from full-term babies. Um, there have even been charges, and I do not know the truth of this, Fox News, some other outlets have reported on it, that some medical experts have said some of this harvesting would have had to have come from still living infants, that that is the only way you could get some of those organs. So I'm still looking into that. But the point being, he he was really not someone that should have been presented as the faithful witness in the halls of power without a great big asterisk there and explaining to people, but look, he probably has some very different views than you general pro-lifers who are listening to us right now have. You know, as to why um, they did that, I, I, to this day, I don't know if they didn't know. I look at someone like, say, Russell Moore, and I go, it'd be very hard to imagine that he would not have known at least about Francis Collins's pro-life record and his lack of pro-life record. I don't think he could have possibly known that. And in fact, the University of Chicago audio recording made it fairly clear that he did know that and said, I can differ with him, but I respect him as a Christian brother anyway, which is fine, except for he did not present that information in any of these other interviews. Right. So I don't know. They're not talking. I get a lot of subtweets. I get a lot of sort of oblique references in um, sermons. I, I just heard a sermon from Russell Moore where... He, I think he gave it a couple of week, couple of weeks ago, maybe two weekends ago, where he he did a sermon on um, disingenuous questioners and how Jesus showed that you don't have to answer disingenuous questioners. And I can't help but wonder: Are we talking about me? Who are we talking about here? <laughs> you but, gotta be kidding me! Well, I don't have an answer to that. <laughs> that is funny. Yeah. So for for our listeners who don't who aren't on Twitter, and I don't necessarily recommend it, you may not like me <laughs> right. as much. Um, but uh, you you apparently bumped into him at the Nashville airport and uh, just wanted to ask a couple of questions or at least set up a time to ask questions. And, uh, you know, kind of got redirected. And a lot of people seem to be dunking on you about that. And, you know, like, I, I don't know what actually happened. Uh, I'll say I kind of regret putting it on Twitter. I'll just say, you know, th that wasn't <laughs> it was an impulsive move. I, I did happen to run into him while all this reporting was going out. I put in multiple requests. And he never directly says no. He just says things like, I have, you know, his assistant will say he has COVID right now, he so he can't respond. And then she'll say, well, his schedule is so packed right now, he can't respond. So it's never just a no. Never. So I've kept trying. Yeah. And at this point, I had the Chicago audio. And um, I was probably a little feeling zealous because I knew I had this audio and I was really wanting to talk to him. Right. I had put in the request and was getting no answer. And so I put sort of it. And then I saw him at the airport and it was just ironic that we were on the same flight from Charlotte to Nashville and I was standing right behind him in line. So I couldn't help going, Dr. Moore. Hi, Megan Basham from the Daily Wire. You know, I've been trying to get in touch with you since we're both standing right here. Can I ask you some questions about Francis Collins? 
And he said, no, 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 no. Call my office. You know, I mean, he was nice about it, but he said, no, sure. I'm not going to talk about that right now. Go ahead and call my office. And I kind of said, well, I've tried to call your office. I'm not getting anywhere. So, um, you know, once we were on the plane, I kind of cheekily tweeted, hey, hope that that office call goes somewhere. And I did get raked over the coals. And I will be honest, if I had it to do again, I, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> well, sure. I mean, like, but I, I not I don't need to defend you or justify your actions. And if you really, truly feel like you shouldn't have done it, that's your call. But it helped me gain more insight into how these things work as a pastor, kind of looking on the outside, who Russell Moore was one of my heroes. I mean, I read his book Onward and thought it was just the greatest thing since sliced bread. I thought it was great. And now seeing over these last two years, what what a lot of people, um, like I remember watching, uh, listening to Doug Wilson back years ago, criticizing Moore, Russ Moore. And I was like, what's wrong with Doug? Why is he so angry at everyone? Why is he always attacking people? And now I look back on that and be like, he was right. Like, I think he was right. And so, you know, when you put that tweet out there and you kind of showed how, how the system works, and that's what I've experienced too, is they'll never say no. They'll mm -hmm. always deflect. And, and you know, I get that. Like, I, I don't, it's not necessarily like uh, I hold it against them. You just wish they would say no, uh, right. which is kind of what happened to you with Francis Collins. You were set up to interview him uh, a few days after the story dropped. And then you kind of, you were on Zoom for like 20 minutes or something waiting. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So we, uh, it, it, coincidentally, again, I'm going to say that I'm not going to say coincidentally. I feel like providentially, God keeps putting these guys in my path in unrelated situations right after these stories come out or right before they come out. So in this case, um, right after, I, I mean, literally it was a day or two after I had published the Daily, uh, the Daily Wire, Francis Collins story, um, I get an email from a marketing company who I have partnered with on a lot of projects in the past because they do a lot of movie marketing and I'm also a film critic. So randomly, they email me, hey, Megan, we have an opportunity to talk with former NIH director and BioLogos um, founder, Francis Collins. He has some new curriculum for I think it was high school. So for and maybe maybe it was K through twelve. I'm not sure, but some new science curriculum. That's a whole other discussion. Francis Collins and science, but that's maybe for another time. But anyway, I, I get this email saying, "Would you like to speak with him? Would you like an interview slot?" And I went, "Of course, I want an interview slot." So um, and and I actually did read through all the material they sent about this curriculum and was very careful to keep my questions crafted to that curriculum, but in a way that still posed some challenging questions and that would address some of what I brought up, not all of it because it was a different subject, but some of what I brought up in that article. And uh, I, up until the very last minute, I thought, I can't believe this is going to go through. And I showed up for the Zoom meeting and I sat there and I'm like, okay, you know, his people texted me, he's running a bit late, no problem. 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by. And then I email him and I'm like, uh, are we still good? Do I need to, you know, really briefly sort of uh, trim up my questions because I won't have as much time and silence. And then all of a sudden the screen goes out and says on my Zoom, this meeting has been canceled. And for about an hour, I, I didn't know why. And finally, um, I got in touch with his representatives and they just said he didn't appreciate your tone. He doesn't trust that you have the gracious tone that BioLogos wants to uh, elevate in the world or something like that. 
So I, I asked him what specifically did he object to in my tone and what specifically does he refute in my reporting? And I didn't get an answer. Dude, that's so lame. <laughs> like, it's one thing to be stood up like over coffee, like you're trying to meet some. I mean, at least you didn't like fly somewhere and like set up an interview, but like standing up on Zoom and like bowing out. That is, that is, I mean, like speaking as a man, that's not a very manly way to handle no, you know, that not. kind of thing. That's no, stupid. it was. And what's funny is after that, with the second story, I tried to again go through the official channels and I went back and forth with the NIH a little bit about, um, securing an interview with him and I talked to the you know press office at the NIH and at one point she said well can we hear the audio uh and you know my editor-in-chief was like we don't have to give them anything so no they can have an interview with us or not we're giving them an opportunity to comment on it ahead yeah. of time and once again they just disappeared I, I we went from exchanging emails about how to set it up to no no response Wow, that's incredible. Well, I, I don't have you for a lot longer. I know you're you're super busy. One of the things I did want to touch on that that you mentioned, and and I had listeners. I wanted to touch on Bluey because I love that show. My kids are just a little older. Is that a show that your kids love as well? Love Bluey, and I'm gonna brag, and I'm just I'm I'm gonna front a little bit and flex and say I was a very early Bluey adopter, <laughs> right when it first came out. And it was funny because I was still at World then and we did a review. And um, at the time, I had I don't think I'd ever reviewed a preschool show. And we did a little podcast segment about it. And, you know, I, my boss was a little like, we're going to do a show for three to five-year-olds as our review. I'm like, no, I, I think it's so unique. It's so wonderful in that it's funny and it shows this loving couple. And it has this great father figure who is realistic and authentic. And... Um, I'm going to tell you, I, I don't know that, that I've ever gotten such a response because most people hadn't heard of it then. Sure. And people were so hungry for something like that for kids. And I love that show. I crack up. I mean, I discovered it when I walked in on my husband and my daughter watching it and they were just giggling themselves to death. And I was like, what are you guys watching? It is so and, good. I We yeah, still I, record it. My kids are... Uh... They, they act like they don't enjoy it, but I know if I turn it on, we'll all watch it together. Right. But it, it's a really fun show. That's fun that you're like an early adopter because I had no idea either. Uh, but that's really fun. One of the one of the things that I wanted to cover was Disney. And mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of things going on uh, in Florida, Disney, this kind of stuff. But but you're kind of I think you have an article maybe coming out today, uh, hopefully today. What's going on? What are you discovering there with with kind of the. Uh, whatever the, the the mainstream media is calling it, the don't say gay bill. Right. Um, but but it sounds like there's something going on there. There's a story you're breaking. What, what is that about? Right. And I would say it's more um, an anti-grooming bill. <laughs> if you're not familiar with, I think it's House Bill 1577 um, that Ron DeSantis is set to sign in Florida. It's already passed uh, the Congress. I don't, I don't know if Congress, it's already passed the House and Senate in Florida. And they're waiting for Ron DeSantis to sign it. So what it does is it prevents teachers from discussing sexuality and gender identity with kids in grades kindergarten to third grade, which you go, that that's not that old, right? We're talking five to 10-year-olds. So it's a little sad that we're even considering it controversial or a victory to get a bill across that says teachers aren't allowed to discuss sex with small children without parental consent. But um, it's interesting that you bring up Bluey because it, it, it's kind of a good transition because part of what's so wonderful about Bluey, right, is its innocence and that it upholds the family as biblically instituted, 
Mm. mother, father, strong union, raising kids, a really wonderful father figure. And then you look at what Disney has been doing in recent years. Um, we've seen a lot of very quick LGBT moments in even some of their content for the youngest ages. We have seen uh, a lot of pride celebration, even on Disney Junior, things like that. And so what that tells you is that groups like GLAAD and the Human Rights Campaign have been very diligent in the last couple of decades at gaining influence over studios and networks. And they have done this to such a degree that they have um, consulting arrangements where they get to um, comment on casting, comment on scripts. So a lot of times when you see these things in these movies, like let's say you're watching the Star Wars movie and there's a random lesbian kiss and then they celebrate it. And you go, well, these things are very carefully orchestrated. And that's because activists have worked very hard to get into influential entertainment companies like Disney, and they now work there also. So in the under the previous leadership at Disney, which was a man named Bob Iger, excuse me, uh, yes, Bob Iger was their previous CEO. He was known for being a left-wing activist. He did things like um, speak out on the Georgia heartbeat abortion bill and threatened to stop filming in Georgia over that. Well, Bob Iger retired, and uh, the man who took over after him was Bob Chapek, Chapek is a different sort of leader, and he was known for being nonpartisan, and he was known for wanting to move Disney away from this kind of political activism. And in the last year since he's been there, there's been um, a lot of reporting on clashes he has had with other studio heads under the Disney umbrella, people like Kevin Feige at Marvel, saying that you know he, he's not interested in Disney being um, a political activist organization. And so when this happened in Florida, of course, Disney has Disney World in Florida. It's very connected to the economy there. These activist employees, because it has worked for them in the past, started saying, well, what is Disney going to do about this? What kind of statement are we going to put out? And you have to know it's not just about putting out a statement. The point of these statements isn't for Disney to remind everybody, hey, we're pro-LGBT. The point of these statements is to put pressure on legislators and threaten them that we are going to pull our business and our dollars out of your state if you go ahead with this legislation. So it's a way to end run around the will of the people. So originally, Bob Chapek made it very clear he had no intention of doing this, that he was not going to follow in the footsteps of Bob Iger. The activists within the company took to social media. They made a lot of noise. Um, at that point, the entertainment press also made a lot of noise. They characterized the Hollywood Reporter, for one, characterized this bill as part of the GOP's hard right culture war. Oh. You go, if that's hard right, if not talking to five to 10-year-olds about their sexuality without their parents' consent is hard right, I I'm not sure um, what's just right anymore. What what's just everyday conservative anymore. <laughs> So um, so really what this story illustrates is the degree to which um, you might say the Christian conservative groups in the country, we're, we're still trying to do these little, um, we'll just we'll just drop our Disney. We'll just not subscribe. And you go, right. they are so light years beyond that. I mean, we're just not very effective as political activists. And part of that is because we shouldn't live and breathe politics. But- I looked at that story and I talked to some people who are much more financially savvy than I am. And they said, look, what this shows us is that this is all a part of what's known as ESG investing. And that stands for environmental social governance. And it's happening mm -hmm. all across big business where they are using big business to 
assert the will of the left on the people around the legislative agenda. So we may still be winning elections, but they're still moving the ball forward. And so what, you know, some of these experts have said to me is just that we have to get much more savvy about our investing and about our power as shareholders. And so when the story comes out, I, I explain it all a lot better in print. You might want to go read it, but it's really just about um, how we have really moved on. Even the left has really moved on from using these entertainment companies to, you know, put in little sly references to abortion, the LGBT agenda, and how they're really using them now um, as overt political actors. Wow, that's that's incredible. There's so it's so hard when I hear this stuff. You know, I, I want to keep my focus local. I want to focus on look. I got my family. I got my ministry here, and but there's so many powers at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether uh, going back to the other story with Davos and WF, I mean that that's that itself. You can get con- conspiratorial, I might say, or <laughs> just realistic on it. And then this story with ESG and all this other stuff, it's really hard. Um, but I'm glad there's people like you out there that are reporting on this stuff because I, I do think it's important for Christians to, uh, like you said, not get subsumed by this stuff, but but they need to know what's going on, especially if they're like, why is my pastor so worked up about this stuff? You know, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it's informative because I think we as Christians need to be resilient and, uh, and have an attitude of, of kind of like, hey, we got to be able to stand up and we got to have a different approach. Back in the 90s, when I was growing up Southern Baptist, it was we're going to boycott Disney. And as an eight year old, I was like, why? I want to watch Tarzan. No. <laughs> um, but now I'm like, boy, boycotting, that's, uh, that's one tactic, but we're going to have to figure out a way to get more agile and more innovative with how we, uh, how we you know, um, don't let kindergartners get taught talk to about sex by the public school educators. So I appreciate the work you're doing. Well, and I'll just say a little plug for my husband who works for work, which is funny. He came into World News Group uh, and World Magazine as I was going out and helped them develop a new um, broadcasting product for uh, junior hires and high school students to help them um, become more savvy news consumers and to to learn news literacy. And one of the things he says on his show, and if you're a homeschooler, you got a Christian school, Christian school, it's, it's a really great product. It's called World Watch. You should go check it out. But the reason I bring it up is because at the end of every program, he has this tagline, and I remind myself of it all the time. And it is, uh, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Mm. And I have to remind myself of that all the time. You know, it's it's really easy to feel all this anxiety and anger and upset over what's going on. But then I have to remind myself that look, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. So whatever kind of, you know, fancy investing tricks you're trying to work, whatever the news, the purpose of the Lord is going to stand. Amen. That's a great reminder. And and I think that's a great way to close it out. Is there any other content? Well, I'll plug that, uh, that world uh, curriculum that you just mentioned in the show notes. Any other, uh, any other places you want to plug? People can follow you, stay up to date with what you're doing. Um, you know, I'm on the Andrew Clavin show once a month now, uh, which if you're familiar with our podcasters, uh, Andrew Clavin is uh, really wonderful. He's He's got, I enjoy his podcast a lot because he is a Christian and it has a lot, which, you know, Ben is Jewish and Michael and uh, Matt are Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh. They're both Catholic. So I really enjoy Drew's personally because we're of like mind in that it, religiously. So um yeah. So if you want to check me out once a month on Drew's podcast, please come do that. And on, of course, on Morning Wire. 
That's great. Yeah, my kids, it's funny. My eight-year-old loves listening to Morning Wire. Um, he's like, can we really? listen to Morning Wire? Yeah, on the way to school. And so they're asking all sorts of questions like, are they going to do the no-fly zone? <laughs> and I'm like, how do you know all this? It's because we listen to Morning Wire, uh, which I really enjoy as well. That's so, awesome. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, to my listeners, yeah, we got the Patreon listed in the show notes. Uh, I'll have all the resources that we've listed out there as well. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.